Let me say again that I am very thankful for the invitation to be uh, here with you, uh, bringing this instruction from the Word of God. It's a, it's a great privilege to be able to minister to the members of the regional church, and I trust that God will, will bless us richly. Um, just a personal note as we begin, I was, uh, as I say, thankful when the board asked me last year if I'd be willing to speak this year, but then when a couple of the board members came back, to me shortly afterwards and suggested that I speak on the uh, peace and the unity of the church, I sort of, I said, you're kidding, right? (laughs) You sure you have the right Roger Wagner? I mean, having been associated with more than one controversial issues and seeming to have been in an awful lot of scrapes through my ecclesiastical life, I thought, there must be somebody who knows more about this than I do. Uh, And yet, as I thought about it, um, I was very grateful to to have the challenge because, as uh, your ministers will tell you, we don't don't often minister our very best out of what we know, but out of what we don't know, what the Lord will teach us that we can then pass on to God's people. It's certainly a very, very important topic, uh, and I do consider myself uh, an unlikely speaker, but I trust God will bless us all, and I, uh, I appreciate many of you have told me that you've been praying for me and for the camp, and, and uh, I've been praying for you that together we might be taught of God. Um, it is also kind of an evidence of, of uh, God's ironic sense of humor, because I was thinking 20 years ago, I wouldn't have come to a conference on this topic. You know, peace and unity, that was namby-pamby, wussy stuff. I was more excited about what divided the church than I was what uh, united it. And, and maybe some of you have been or still are uh, in that position. Um, I'm not going to take time to go through the uh, booklet and show you where we're going. You hopefully have already taken a, uh, a look at the different topics, how I'm going to approach this. Uh, typical disclaimer, there's way more to consider on this topic than we could possibly handle even in eight messages. Uh, And some of these things are going to have to be suggestive. Some passages we're not going to be able to touch on at all. Some will only uh, go by um, uh, quickly. Um, And I'm aware that uh, it always happens in retreats uh, and, uh, and camps and so forth. About the time you're really getting spiritually in tune with one another, it's time to load up the car and go home. And I know that there's so many things that go on at a family camp with our children and other obligations that you don't even got, get the kind of quick homogeneity that you get in a, uh, a ladies' retreat or a men's retreat or something else uh, like that. And so I'm aware that some of the things that we'll be touching on, at least by the time I may convince you of something, will be gone and you may or may not have the opportunity to follow up on it. But I'm going to I'm going to risk that anyway. For example, in the seventh message, I'm going to try to really persuade you to become enthusiastic about seeking one another out to be reconciled. Unfortunately, that will come on Friday morning uh, when we will be ready to to leave. But maybe the people you most need to be reconciled with are back in your local churches at home. Although I'd love to see some people uh, take it upon themselves if, uh, if it's necessary, if it's appropriate, to even talk to brothers or sisters, uh, either from whom they are estranged, 
uh, or that they're just not all that enthusiastic about. Maybe somebody on the other side of the theological aisle that you really never sat down and actually had a conversation with. Maybe that would be some fruit that could be born right away from our time together. At the break, I'm going to put out some uh, Xerox things that are just kind of Uh, Some of them will relate to the talks directly. Some of them are just things to read in your leisure time, think about, pray about, talk about, uh, just to try and maximize um, uh, the benefit that we can have. Because I think your prayers together, your conversations together, uh, as you take what we learn from God's Word and put it into practice in your lives is going to be as uh, significant as anything that I can offer you by way of, of counsel or advice or direction. So, the topic of unity. Uh, Jonathan Swift, the uh, English satirist of the 18th century in his Gulliver's Travels, has a kind of an interesting little vignette there where he, he describes the, the controversy that was raging between some of these fictional people uh, over the question of big ends and little ends. And this controversy had divided this society so profoundly. And and Gulliver, of course, who's kind of the semi-naive narrator who stumbles into things and and is always puzzled but gives the the expression to the satire, he's wondering, what's this big end, little end thing? turns out that the controversy was over when you boil your egg and you're preparing to eat it, do you crack it open from the big end or do you crack it open from the small end? And the people who were the big enders have thought, of course, that's the only possible way to eat an egg for breakfast. And the people who thought you ought to open the small end, the narrow end, were equally vociferous. And here's all this raging going over something like that. Well, for a a skeptic like Swift, he would throw every theological and ecclesiastical controversy into that category. It's much ado about nothing. We don't want to take that approach. We know that truth is very, very important. And sometimes, by our Savior's own testimony, truth will divide the most profound human relationships. Husbands and wives, parents and children, brothers and sisters. And sometimes, truth and the claims of truth divide our fellowships among believers as well. But having said that, and maybe this is more autobiographical than anything else, I think we can then begin to justify any kind of division by arguing that truth is at stake. And sometimes the truth that's at stake, if we're honest about it, isn't really much more, different, more, more significant than whether you open your hard-boiled egg at the big end or at the little end. Not all divisions in the church result from controversies. I remember... Um, at times in congregations talking to the old-timers, who many of them would observe, you know, we just don't do things much together anymore in the local church and then sometimes even between our congregations, even though the geographical distance sometimes uh, is not very great. You know, our sister congregation in Bonita is only about five miles away, but we rarely do things together. Not because it's so far to drive over there or for them to come to us. It's just that we live in our own congregational worlds and we do our own thing. We haven't had a fight with Bonita, but we're divided in some sense just because it takes work and thought to overcome the natural kind of divisions among us. Um, we're near to each other in some ways on paper and yet very far from each other in other ways. But most of the time, um, 
the divisions, at least the ones that last, do arise out of controversy and out of sinful struggles. I guess most of you know, unless you're brand new to the Presbytery, that the struggles within the Presbytery of Southern California have come to denominational attention more than once over the last 20, 25 years, maybe longer than that. That's as long as I've been in the Presbytery. Uh, I remember uh, a commission, uh, not a commission, a, a committee sent from the General Assembly years ago to come out and sit down with uh, the elders uh, from the Presbytery to try and find out why can't you guys just get along. Uh, that was over the controversy du jour, and I don't even remember what it was at that point. probably had something to do with theonomy or matters pertaining thereunto. Uh, but then we've had other arguments over the days of creation, the con- continuation of the charismatic gifts and the place of the law, the life and believer. And, and, you know, we can just, they're just like malls. You hit the log and it splits and you hit it again and it splits and you hit it again and it splits. And sometimes in the Presbytery, you can even tell that whatever the issue on the floor is, is not the real issue as the fallout begins to separate brothers. So there's that. Now, thankfully, um, the regional church, you know, that, that's a wonderful phrase. Uh, I love the, when, the, when they revised the form of government, they started incorporating that language of the regional church. But there again, it's kind of an idea without flesh and blood, except on those rare occasions like family camp, where at least some of us from different congregations can get together and act like the regional church. Uh, a larger body of believers that have Christ and our precious Reformed faith in common. Uh, or joint worship services. Sometimes in a, in a, in a uh, metropolitan area we can get several churches together. And so um, the, the division in the regional church may not be as starkly reflected. Although I remember when my children were young, um, we got some story came back, I'm not sure if it was completely straight, about even the young people at the youth retreats kind of breaking themselves up by area code or something, you know, so that they could uh, be on one side or another of this and that. So um, we'll be talking about the causes of disunity, but I want to uh, give us a theological basis and then I hope some practical instruction on how we can promote the unity of the church and its peaceful relations. I've uh, taken my title from Paul's words Um, in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, and I'd like to just read the paragraph for you, lay it before you, and then we'll pray and get into our first study. Uh, One new man in Christ, the basis of the peaceful unity of the church. And I forgot to check what time I started, but I guess I have to finish by 10.30. Okay, we'll see. (laughs) I'm a post-mill, I'm optimistic, anything could happen. I could finish a sermon in 45 minutes. I'm not that optimistic. (laughs) All right, let's give our careful and believing attention to God's Word. Beginning in the 11th verse of Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. 
by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man. There's the title for our series. That he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the richness of your word. It speaks to every concern of our hearts and of our experience, individually and corporately. And we uh, cry out to you for great things. We pray that this one Spirit who dwells within us might work in our hearts and minds a growing sense of our unity in Christ, the crucified Lord, And that he would stir us up not to take the easy way of remaining distant from one another, of doing our own thing and going our own way, but the costly and diligent work of building one another up in a peaceful unity, reflecting in our very corporate identity that glory which is in Christ our head. May he receive the praise, not only by what we say, but even more by the way we live our lives together. Amen. Before we look at this passage in uh, detail, I want to give you a little bit of background um, concerning God's purpose in the division and the reunion of Jews and Gentiles about which Paul speaks in this passage. God's purpose is to do nothing less than restore the entire human race in Jesus the Messiah. You can draw a straight line from this passage in Ephesians chapter 2 back to the original promise of salvation that was given by the Lord God to Abraham in Genesis 12. In Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, we read, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and then now get this, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. From the very beginning, the Creator God has purposed to restore the world and the human race within it, all the families of the earth, that race which was fallen and lost in Adam, by means of the covenant that He graciously made with Abraham. With Abraham, God begins to restore, and I recognize that His purposes of grace were at work between Adam and Abraham, but really with Abraham, God begins to work at remaking the human race, renewing those fallen in Adam by His gracious 
purposes. God chose Abram, who then became known as Abraham, so that he would become the father of a multitude of nations. That's the language of Genesis 17, verse 5. A passage quoted by Paul in Romans chapter 4. From the beginning, Israel was to be the channel through which a salvation would flow that was universal in its scope. So there was a narrow channel, but it was only that. It wasn't to be the end of God's purposes of redemption, but a means to an end which was ultimately universal, as broad as the race of mankind. Later in the Old Testament, that Gentile hope came to be associated in particular with the coming of the promised Messiah. For for example, think of Isaiah chapter 11. Uh, There we are told about this branch that will come up out of the stump of Jesse. Uh, A branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and of might, spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And then in verse 10 of Isaiah chapter 11, In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. The rising of the Messiah will begin to have an impact upon the Gentile nations, who up to this point have been outsiders, strangers from Abraham's family. Or again, in Isaiah chapter 42, beginning in verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And as you know, the the term Gentile means nations, the, the pagan unbelieving nations outside of Israel. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait for his law. So the prophet sees the Messiah bringing justice not only to Israel, but through Israel to all the nations of the earth. And in the beginning of that great uh, messianic, uh, the, the suffering servant song in Isaiah 52 and 53, we read of the servant of the Lord, he shall sprinkle many nations. And so the work of Messiah is understood to be a work that has universal implications, worldwide implications. Now the connection between those prophecies And the work of Jesus the Messiah is made explicit. Just to take one of many examples, Matthew in chapter 12 quotes from Isaiah 42. In one of Matthew's wonderful summary statements that explain what Jesus was doing and why, Matthew writes, beginning in verse 15 of Matthew 12, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And again, verse 21, and in his name, the Gentiles will hope. So Matthew wants us to get the point. 
that Jesus now is fulfilling through his public ministry in Palestine that ancient promise to begin to gather in the nations, the Gentiles. Or, I said I was going to choose one example, let me give you one more. Uh, Commenting on the faith of the Roman centurion in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus declared, verse 10, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And then he goes on to say, I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus sees in this Roman centurion, this pagan soldier, an example of the kind of faith that is going to be the common experience of the nations as they begin to come to understand that Jesus is indeed not simply the king of the Jews in some narrow parochial sense, but because he's the king of the Jews, he's also king of kings and lord of lords. And the centurion with his submissive obedience uh, shows forth what Jesus takes to be the hallmark, the characteristic of saving faith. You say what you want, Lord, and I will do it. Say the word and my servant will be healed. You don't have to come to my house. And so the Great Commission, as we call it, comes in precisely the universal form that we would have expected given the unfolding of God's original purposes announced to Abraham. Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So in a sense, that's, uh, that's like at the beginning of the Kentucky Derby. You know, all the horses are in the gate, and then the bell rings, and the gate goes open, and away they go. Well, Jesus has got His disciples, as it were, in the gate. He's taught them what He's doing. Now He's died and risen from the dead. And now He says, go and do what the prophets spoke of. The promise to Abraham, through you and through your descendant, Jesus the Messiah, all the nations of the earth will now be blessed. And the disciples were to go and implement that great worldwide victory. The Apostle Paul, bringing it now closer to our text, had a special role, as he understood it, to play in the unfolding story of the Messiah and his relationship to these pagan nations, these Gentiles. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 16, where he's kind of explaining his role in the divine economy, he says, God was pleased to reveal His Son to me in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. Paul was called to be a minister to the Gentiles. Earlier in that chapter, in verse 7, when he talked about going to Jerusalem and presenting his message and his own person to those who were leaders in Jerusalem, uh, he uh, says in verse 7, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that is the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, 
for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised also worked through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived that gra- the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So the church recognizes that God has now commissioned a particular apostle who is going to concentrate his efforts on the Gentiles, though by his own testimony he went first to the Jews, but then also to the Gentiles. When we come to the 15th chapter of Romans, there Paul again explains what the meaning of his particular ministry is. Verse 8, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So you see, Paul recognizes the continuity. What Jesus came to do is implementing the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through them to bring a blessing on all the nations of the earth. Verse 9, And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy, as it is written, and then he quotes these Old Testament passages, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol Him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and in him will the Gentiles hope. And then he goes on to say in verse 15, because of the grace given to me by God, and that's one of the phrases that Paul uses to describe his apostolic commission. It's not the general saving grace of God, to me, although it includes that, but it's particularly the grace of calling a persecutor of the church to now be a proclaimer of the gospel of Christ, that apostolic calling. So because of the grace given to me to be a minister of Christ, Jesus to the Gentiles, in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring, uh, uh, through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. So Paul understood. We'll come back to that passage in a later talk because it's, uh, it's neat to see the way in which Paul sees what he was doing or preparing to do at that very time as a fruit of that Great work among the Gentiles. So, gathering up this background for a moment. In a sense, we could say God Himself created the problem of disunity because of His gracious purpose not to redeem only one people from Adam's fall, but to redeem people from every nation and tribe and kindred. It's just the magnanimousness of God's grace, His universal embrace of mercy, that creates the problem then of how are we going to get all of these different people together to experience one salvation. And so God created the problem of disunity because of His purpose to extend this grace through Israel to all the nations of the earth. And then God solved the problem that He created through the person and the work of His Son. Jesus the Messiah. And that brings us then into our text 
uh, this morning from Ephesians chapter 2. So I wanted to give you that background so you'll see it in the flow of redemptive history. As you see, God always had one, pro- uh, one purpose in view, to save the world, to save it regardless of its ethnic and national and racial distinctions, but to do that through the channel of Israel finally narrowed down to the true Israelite, Jesus the Messiah. And then through Him, all the blessings of God come upon the families of the earth. So now Paul, with that background in mind and what he said elsewhere, unpacks this idea of the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile through the work of Jesus, particularly His death upon the cross. Paul, a Jew, forthrightly confronts the problem faced by his Gentile readers. He tells them frankly, you are without hope because you are without God. Now they had plenty of gods, but they were without the true and living God, the creator and sustainer of the heavens and the earth. The God particularly up to that point identified as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Jews. Without that God, there is no hope of salvation. And for that reason, they were without hope. And all of this is because they were alienated, Paul says in verse 12, from the commonwealth of Israel. Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, remember that you were at that time separated from the Messiah, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant, covenants of promise. That's why they were then without hope and without God in the world, because it was God's sovereign purpose to bring His salvation to men through the vehicle of Israel, His chosen people. Under the old covenant then, Israel was the exclusive channel of God's grace. To come to God, you had to come to Israel. Ruth understood that. Where you go, I go. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. And others, uh, although they are few in number, identified themselves. They clung to Israel as a way of clinging to Israel's God. So, circumcision is a sign to the Gentiles of their alienation. They are not circumcised. They don't have circumcision, and therefore they don't belong. They are outsiders looking in, Paul says. Those who have the circumcision are the insiders. Those who are without the circumcision are those who are aliens from the blessings that that circumcision signified and sealed. And the Jews were quick to point this out, and I imagine Paul probably imagined or remembered the days when he used to say that, but for different reasons. Uh, Looking at the Gentiles and saying, yes, you people are dogs. You are outsiders. You have no hope uh, because salvation is from the Jews. They could never hope for anything better than second-class citizenship. Now, it's worth just noting here as we pass by it that Paul indicates specifically, explicitly, that he's talking about circumcision in the flesh. That is, the physical right of circumcision. For in Paul's grander scheme of theology, 
The Gentiles who believe that Jesus is indeed the Messiah are, paradoxically, the true circumcision. They are the ones who genuinely have experienced the circumcision of Messiah, having been united to Him through baptism, as Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. But behind this problem of being a Gentile, there is a deeper more universal problem, the problem of human sinfulness and corruption. So we have to back up a few verses to the beginning of chapter 2 in Ephesians. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Did you notice the the subtle shift there in the way Paul was speaking? You were dead in trespasses and sins. You once walked. But then in verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We all then are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Very interesting. Paul had learned something very important in coming to recognize Jesus as the long-promised Messiah and Lord of all as he encountered Him on the, uh, the risen Jesus on the Damascus Road. As he would explain more fully in Romans, Paul came to discover that the Torah, the law, Uh, given to Moses, in which he as a Jew had boasted, not only exposed the sinfulness of the Gentiles, and so you could always use the Torah to throw rocks at the Gentiles, but he also came to understand that that same Torah revealed the Jews themselves to be covenant breakers. Paul came to understand that the Jews weren't part of the solution anymore. They were part of the problem. And both Jew and Gentile alike stood condemned under the law and in need of the mercy that was um, only available through Jesus the Messiah. And I won't take you through those passages, but if you just want to make make a note, uh, Paul talks about this in Romans 2 at length, uh, beginning in verse 12 and, and going down through verse 29 where he explains you know, what it really means to be a Jew, what, it, what circumcision is really all about. Uh, and he points out that um, the Jews who were circumcised in the flesh and had rejected Jesus as the Messiah were just as much condemned by the law as the Gentiles were. And then he picks the theme up again in Romans chapter 7 as well. Paul had learned from bitter personal experience that sin is not a Gentile problem. It's a human problem a problem from which even God's good Torah cannot deliver mankind. So that means then that Jesus is central and essential to the realization of God's gracious purpose of redemption for the Jew and also for the Gentile. Each of them need to find in Jesus Himself the solution to the problem of human sin. Through Jesus' atoning death on the cross, God dealt decisively and finally with human sin and with one of its most dramatic consequences, that is, human alienation. Human alienation results 
from human sin. You see it there in the garden. Adam and Eve sin against God and they immediately distance themselves from each other. They begin to cover up. They begin to blame one another. Uh, And so the division between husband and wife results directly from the breach between God and man as a result of sin. And that works its way out then through human history. Uh, Karl Marx, you know, he thought that alienation was the human problem. He saw the problem. He just thought it was a, a, a result of economic considerations. He did not see to the heart of the matter, which is the spiritual estrangement between sinful human beings and their God, their Creator. Paul speaks about human helplessness. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. He mentions that phrase both in verse 1 and verse 5. And then he speaks about the divine action. God made us alive and raised us up with Jesus and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. By virtue of our union with Christ, we who were dead in our sins have been made alive again. Tried to Make that clear to the children last night. In Adam, we are sinners, we die. In Christ, we are righteous and made alive. And he points us in verse 7 to the fountainhead of this wondrous redemption. Nothing less than the immeasurable riches of God's grace in kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. Paul just loves to multiply the modifiers to identify the the wondrousness, the glory of God's mercy to us in Jesus Christ. The immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness. Get it? That's why we have hope. That's why we can enjoy the blessings of salvation. Because redemption is accomplished, uh, is Christ's accomplishment, and is God's gracious gift then, Paul says, it is received by faith. And that faith which receives this glorious redemption, is itself a gift of God. Verses 8 and 9. Therefore, all human boasting is excluded. There is no ground in us, nothing that we can bring to God, nothing that we can do for God that brings this blessing, but solely and completely the work of Christ finished on the cross and in the resurrection. Then Paul goes on to draw out the implications of God's mercy. And this is really where we're going in our consideration today, the the heart of the matter, so to speak. He draws out the implications of God's mercy and kindness for the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. Jesus' death and resurrection, according to Paul, constitutes an act of new creation for the human race. Verse 13, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who who has made us both one and broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. Just as our breach with God, our sin against God, divided us from Him and then separated us from one another, now the reconciling work of Christ through the cross of Calvary not only brings us near to God, but it brings us together in one new person. 
and reconciles us to God. That's the logic as Paul sees the vertical and the horizontal dimensions of this reconciling work through the cross. So, he creates in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So the vertical reconciliation between God and sinful man begin, uh, and human beings is reflected in the horizontal plane of human relationships as well. Principally, in the reunion of Jews and Gentiles in Jesus the Messiah. That's kind of the, the epitome, the paradigm for reconciliation that takes place on a human level in every other way. Notice, Jews don't become Gentiles, nor do Gentiles have to become Jews, but rather, through the cross of Jesus, God has created in Himself one new man, thus making peace. So if I can say it this way, just to make it memorable, don't... uh, Don't push this farther than it's intended. But we could say, a new Adam is created out of the old Adam by virtue of the redemptive accomplishment of the second and last Adam. Now, you've got to keep your eyes on the ball, on the Adam as it is. A new Adam, that is all of us as part of a new humanity, created out of the old Adam, human beings who rebelled and fell into sin, by virtue of the work of the last Adam, Jesus the Messiah. Through His reconciling cross, the old has been made new in terms of our humanity, our human nature. And that's not simply personal, individual transformation and renewal. I mean, we rejoice in that, we celebrate that, and too often that's as far as our thought goes. You know, I am new and I have a new relationship with God. What I want you to understand is the self-same work of Christ that enables you to say that compels you to say that in relationship to others around you as well. If sin divides me from God and Jesus took it away through the cross, that same sin that divides me from others around me is in principle taken away as well through that same cross. Now, Paul mentions the the Torah, the law of commandments and ordinances, which constituted the dividing wall of hostility between the Jews and Gentiles. And that was the kind of spiritual, or that was the kind of no man's land uh, across which the Jews and the Gentiles could glare at each other and shout and uh, sometimes throw their uh, hatred against one another. That has been abolished, taken away. It no longer stands as a dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles. And you well know, many of you, that a good deal of the New Testament, and we'll touch on some of this later on, is designed to explain how that barrier is overcome and how do Jews and Gentiles now function as one new man in Christ. But that's for a later time. Removing the barrier of sin, then, Paul says, has brought peace. It has brought shalom both between God and man and among alienated human beings. The result of the Father's gracious provision and the result of Jesus' redemptive accomplishment is one church 
made up of Jews and Gentiles, on equal footing as one new man, living together by the one Spirit. Verses 19 through 22. You're no longer strangers and aliens. Now you are fellow citizens with the saints. You are members of the same household of God. You have been joined together in the Lord Jesus. And you are being built up together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, let's just close by bringing this up into the post-apostolic period. I don't think most of us, especially since most of us North American Christians are not from Jewish extraction. There's a few of us around, I suppose. But we don't, we don't agonize over the Jew-Gentile distinction all that much, do we? Do you? I don't, I don't think so. <clears throat> and so that's not at center stage of our awareness like it was for Paul and that first generation of believers. Reconciliation, though, with God through the death of of Christ on the cross, continues now for us to provide the basis for peaceful unity among the people of God. Not just for Jews and Gentiles. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 speaks about a ministry of reconciliation, beginning in verse 17. Therefore, if if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us, We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This ministry of reconciliation, as Paul expresses it here, is centered in the message of reconciliation. And the message of reconciliation is what we just spent 15 or 20 minutes explaining from Ephesians chapter 2, how God in Christ was reconciling the world through the cross. And that's the language that he uses here in verses 19 and 20. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Sin separates us from God. God's grace and righteousness reconciles us to God and restores a broken relationship with him. So it centers in the message that Paul preached But this ministry of reconciliation also required Paul and the other apostles to work out the implications of that reconciliation. Okay, let's grant that that's true. Through the cross of Christ, we are reconciled to God and Jews and Gentiles and other human groupings are reconciled together. What does it actually look like? What does that mean? What does that tell us about the choices and the actions that we ought to take? So Paul had to think through in the Spirit those implications. And then he had to teach them to the church, explain them to the people of God who might be on one side or another of that big dividing line, but at the very least were in one city or another town or another region, perhaps from one race or another ethnic background. All broken relationships must be 
because of the cross of Christ. All broken relationships must be healed because of the cross of Christ. And here's the good news. All human relationships can be healed if we take seriously the reality of the cross of Christ. By the power of the one Spirit, applying the saving benefits of Jesus' atonement to our hearts and lives, we may and we must move to a greater unity. But there's a little bit more. And that is that this teaching now has to be put into practice with such consistency and such frequency and such universality that the churches and the individual members of those churches become skillful in the practices of reconciliation. This is very, very important. You know, um, you sometimes ask somebody if they've read a book, and they say, yeah, I read it. And it's like if you read a book, you've read a book. I, I, I remember how shocked I was the first time I read C.S. Lewis. He, he was answering in one of his letters. Somebody asked him what he thought about a book, and he says, I can't give you an opinion because I've only read it once. I'm not entitled to tell you what I think about a book unless I've read it two or three times. We think, oh, boy, if I finish a book, I finished a book. I mean, if you're like me, you have finish 20 or 30 or 50 books, you know. So nibble here, nibble there, nibble here, there. But, but let's say you read a book on how to play basketball. And let's say it's written by Michael Jordan. So you're getting the best scoop on basketball fundamentals. But you know that the minute you go out on the court and you pick up that round thing that doesn't look at all like a book, and you start throwing it at that little circle in the sky, it's not as easy as it sounded when you were reading in the book, right? And so you've got to throw the ball and throw the ball and throw the ball and throw the ball thousands of times, tens of thousands of times before you begin to consistently practice what they said was in the book. And so if you can begin then to not just, you know, everybody leaves you alone and you have, you know, you can bounce the ball several times and you can sight in and then you can, but where you're in the midst of the play and some big guy like Mark Schroeder's giving you the elbow and pushing you around and you can still jump up, throw the round ball, get it through the round hoop and you think, yeah, right, I got it. And you'd consider yourself skillful in the practice of what was there in the book. But then there's the guy who wrote the book. Michael Jordan and others like him who take the skill of basketball playing to the form of high art. And they can do things with their bodies and a basketball. I mean, if, if you're old enough to be in the pre-Michael Jordan, I mean, we, we saw people like Bob Cousy and we saw people like Elgin Baylor and Jerry West and those. I mean, they're great players, but nobody ever did what Michael Jordan could do until he did it. Well, you see, that's the way it is with this matter of learning to practice reconciliation. It's not enough to let me show you in the book where Paul says, through the cross of Christ, you can and you should be reconciled with one another. We have to begin to develop the skills and then keep working at it so much that we begin to turn it into high art. And in those places when the church becomes that kind of beautiful, reconciling community, then the world is going to finally start taking notice. But as long as we're holding out to the world a book and say the answers are here, 
and then beating each other to death over here with great skill, the world is going to be justified in saying, you know, you guys don't know what you're talking about. And unfortunately, I think for myself and maybe for many of you, it doesn't get much past book learning. Maybe some of us are trying to develop the skills, but rare indeed is the person who has raised this ministry of reconciliation to a high art. I think the Apostle Paul raised it to that kind of art. Everything he thought about and everything that he did in some way was connected with pulling the people of God together around the cross of Christ. And that's what God challenges us with as we explore his word together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your work upon the cross, your deep, deep love for us is really beyond our expression. The more we study it, the more we catch sight of its glory, the more we are humbled. Lord, I love that song we sang earlier just because it expresses that kind of wonder-filled humility, how deep the Father's love for us how rich beyond all telling. And Lord, we can celebrate it. We can sing about it. But you have begun to show us now this morning that it must change our relationships to one another. Lord, some of us may be racists. We wouldn't actually admit that, but we get very nervous when people of other races and other nationalities come around us. Some of us may be very class conscious and we don't like the riffraff. We don't like the the white trash from the trailer parks. We are above all that. Maybe some of us are very settled in our economic security and we don't like poor people. We have to help them, the Bible says so, but we certainly don't want to have anything to do with them. Lord, you know where our hearts are. You know where we have to come from if this message and this ministry of reconciliation is really going to become a skill much less an art form in the way we live our lives. So Lord, please push us in that direction a little bit this week as we try to come to various passages and and think about various things to understand how uh, we can see worked out in our lives and experience that, that great picture of you creating out of not just the two, but the many, one new human being in Jesus Christ through his cross, reconciling us to yourself and to one another. Lord, grant us your grace. Give us your spirit. May that one spirit work unity and peace within our hearts and in our lives and relationships, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. I guess you're...